FDA is going to require that the manufacturers include a component of BA4, BA5. That will push back a modified vaccine until October at the earliest. I'm going to go out and get a second booster. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our coronavirus update. Fred and Bill, once again, thanks. And uh, obviously, there's still some important news here around uh, COVID and uh, what we're seeing around the world. Bill, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I mean, I, as I think I probably said the last time we got together also, it's COVID's not going away. And in fact, globally, the estimated, and remember, these are all estimates, the estimated case rate increase is about 30% in the last week or so. Um, that's a pretty big change. UK is seeing cases going up, seeing hospitalizations increasing fairly significantly. Interestingly, however, case deaths continue to go down. Um, and that's fairly, that's fairly repeatable across the world, that we are seeing lots of cases. We're seeing a fair amount of hospitalization, certainly a higher hospitalization rate than we saw earlier this year but we're not seeing deaths. And a lot of that is because we know how to effectively manage uh, these in-hospital cases very well. Um, And we have good both outpatient and inpatient antivirals now. So we've still got a, a, a very infectious disease, but it's not as fatal as it was once. Yeah, I agree with Bill. And, and I've been managing a lot of these, helping manage a lot of these inpatients. And what we decided early on, our hospitalist team, is we start remdesivir within two hours of admission because we know that that antiviral, uh, at the point you administer, the disease stops progressing. It won't, you won't necessarily improve, uh, go backwards, but you won't, go, you won't worsen. And I think that's a very important lesson. So when someone is sick enough to need, uh, is getting sick, they need to seek medical attention early on and get either, if they're not that sick, they can get Paxlovid, which is also an excellent, excellent antiviral, or they, if they're hospitalized, they can get remdesivir. And both of those will uh, kill the virus and reduce the, vir- the viremia. And it's that high viral load that stimulates inflammation and then there's the inflammation that causes all the damage, particularly the leakage of fluid into the lungs. And I know you guys are following um, some reports on new variants. Uh, what can you share with us? At this point, it's just, it's just that. The reports, we don't have a whole lot of data. Um, what's, what's we're hearing is coming out of India is they're reporting a new variant, BA 2.75. Um, so this is, if you want to think of it, it's going back on back down the tree a little bit. Um, it appears to be highly infectious, causing rapid case growth in India. Um, but as you recall, India got hit very, very hard with Delta. And because they had had so many people hit hard with Delta, they didn't get hit as hard with the earlier Omicron variants. So this may be India getting hit hard with Omicron. How this is going to fare when it reaches a country that has not, that has been previously hit hard with a BA2 variant, I, I don't think we know that. But Fred, you may have some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, they, the BA5 and the BA2.75, 
seem to have a uh, even higher reproductive rate than the original Omicron, which was about 10, that, were, that is one person on average infected 10 people. This, these are more like 12 to 13. So that's why they're becoming dominant. Whichever variant is most contagious is the one that will dominate. Um, as far as severity of illness, it does appear that uh, Omicron is less severe than Delta, and all the strains seem to be a comparable as far as disease severity. I have not seen any of the variants, Omicron variants, uh, are, are not publicized to be more severe. So you get uh, more people get sick. If you have underlying diseases, you're more likely to have severe disease. So there are still some deaths, but uh, then there's the underlying, many people have some immunity already, and so they don't get as full-blown a disease as they did before. And that's, I think, why we're not seeing as high a death rate. Well, in the U.S., I saw, I think it's about 325 per day are, are dying, which isn't uh, like our peak, but it's still a significant number. We have uh, some concerns uh, that have been expressed to me from our audience and our network, uh, just about global travel, whether for business or pleasure. Are there any guidelines that you guys would share with the audience about uh, places not to go or, you know, how to think about international travel? No, I think, well, right now with what's going on in India with the fairly rapid case growth, I, I think I would probably just want to, if you have the option uh, to wait on a trip to South Asia, that might not be a bad idea. Not because they're getting, their rates are that high right now, but they are growing rapidly because of this two point, BA 2.75. Uh, but other than that, you know, most of the world is at a pretty similar level. BA4, BA5 is rapidly becoming dominant. Case case uh, rate growth is, is happening, unfortunately. Um, the, the hospitalizations are happening, but almost almost entirely happening in people who are not vaccinated or at least under vaccinated or are at extremes of age, primarily at the older older ages um, where they may have decreased immunity. But for people who are young, uh, young good health, and I'm defining young as, as under 65, um, and in good it's health. Very, it's very generous of you, Bill. Okay. <laughs> thank you, yeah. thank you. Um, but, and, and in good health, I think that, that travel can be done safely. The other thing is that people are gonna be doing it anyway. Uh, I, still, I still maintain that it's a good idea to wear a mask when you're in the, the, the crowded parts of the travel, you know, getting onto the, in the, in the airport, in lines, uh, getting, into the, getting on the plane. But then once you're flying on the plane, yeah, it's, it's probably reasonable to take your mask off or uh, as you, you, while, while eating or maybe even the whole time while the plane is in the air. But I think travel can be, can be done safely. Yeah, I agree with Bill. At this point, this, as we all know, this virus has been going on and on. We can't put our entire lives on hold forever. And now that most of us have some immunity, the price of getting infected is much lower. And uh, unfortunately, a couple of my friends have gone to travel. One went to England, and uh, seven out of eight that were traveling together uh, got the, the Omicron uh, infection. But all of them were mild, and uh, if they were started on Paxlovid quickly, and uh, within 24 hours of Paxlovid, all of them uh, 
their fever resolved and most of their symptoms resolved as well. So I think we have better tools, we're more immune, and I, I think it's reasonable to travel and carry on your life uh, being a little cautious, and I agree with masks in public spaces, and trying to avoid big crowds if you can, inside. Outside, I think you're pretty safe. Okay, just uh, two other quick topics to touch upon. Uh, one is um, people uh, seem to be getting reinfected. Uh, know of a number of situations from companies we deal with where um, even senior members who have been very, very careful uh, have you know come down with this too. And I know of uh, several that actually, uh, let's call it 2.5 times. Uh, so any perspective on reinfections and you know what it means to your health and how people should be thinking about uh, the potential for this and what to do. Well, let me give you the concerning point on that. The Veterans Affairs came out with a study last week. Uh, preprint study has not been reviewed, uh, but it's been it's the same type of study that they've been doing throughout the uh, the pandemic where they showed that amongst veterans, that with each subsequent case of COVID, their chance of having an adverse outcome was higher. Um, that has not been replicated anywhere else. And you have to know that the VA population is a different population than the rest of the United States. Um, it still raises some concerns because they're, I mean, they're not that different. But I have not seen that in, in my patient population, and I'm taking, I've had a lot of patients now who have had multiple cases of COVID. I have not seen any who have been worse. In fact, everyone I've had has been the second or, or a couple of cases, third, mostly second case, um, has been much more mild. Uh, so I, I don't know what to make of the VA study except to be concerned. Yeah, it hasn't uh, as... Bill pointed out it has not been peer-reviewed yet, so I, you've got to be a little cautious with studies that seem to uh, rub against the grain, so to speak. Um, I've, I haven't seen any other studies on recurrence bouts of COVID, so it's hard to comment. But I, you would think that each with each bout, it would be milder, and your immune system would be more adapted at fighting off the virus. The question that comes up, is if you have multiple episodes, you're more likely to have uh, the chronic uh, long-haul syndrome. And I don't know the answer to that either. It does, doesn't seem to, the long-haul syndrome, uh, it doesn't seem to uh, matter whether you have a severe or a mild case, uh, you, you can still get long-haul syndrome, although severe cases are a little bit more likely. My sense is that we're not seeing as much long-haul COVID with Omicron as we saw with the earlier variants. I have not seen any data that supports that, but um, it's, it's not something that's as, uh, clearly as much of a, of a news item now uh, with, the, with the Omicron variants. Um, I reviewed some of the literature just recently, uh, and I was really, the problem is there isn't a clear definition and one definition has been if after uh, 30 days you're not able, or after, I think it was two weeks, or in some definitions, 30 days, you're not able to go back to your regular activity. Now, wow, that's going to, a lot of things can happen that would 
prevent you from going about your daily life activities in a normal way. So these definitions tend to be very broad, and then when they're this broad, uh, you can say one-third of people have long-haul syndrome, and the press jumps on that immediately. So I, And the WHO has not gotten a good definition yet as well. So I don't think we really know what percentage of people really get true severe uh, syndrome uh, following 30 days after the initial event. I think that's still open to question. All right, just in the couple, last couple of minutes, um, because this is uh, germane to the workforce, our last podcast, you talked about the FDA approval of uh, vaccines for infants. Um, there have been a variety of news reports, um, everything from the availability of the vaccine to possible reactions to it. Um, any further perspectives or thoughts that you can share with the audience? David, we talked a lot about this on our, our last one. I ha my thoughts haven't changed that I'm a if, a, if a young child, a toddler, baby or toddler has a any kind of risk factor whatsoever, any risk factor whatsoever, then I am all for getting them vaccinated. Um, I think it's very important. It can, it can be you know, life-saving, certainly very protective. But for the, the average kids, the average toddler and baby that's out there, I personally still want to see more data. And I, I know I'm not alone. There was a long article in the Wall Street Journal on, um, the, on Tuesday's edition of the- of That's the what I was actually referencing, Bill, um, notwithstanding you know, or covering the topic earlier, it seems very much top of mind. Yeah, you know. no, I, I actually think that article covered the issue very well, is that, is that we have a vaccine that the, the question for to prove a vaccine, you must show that it is safe and efficacious. Well, we believe it to be safe, but we don't have long-term data. We only have, at best, intermediate-term data. And we know that there have been other vaccines that looked great on short and intermediate-term data and then had problems on long-term. So we don't have that yet. So that's a question. And then when we look at efficacy, um, you know, amongst the general public, one of the problems that they had with uh, the vaccine and the studies was they hardly had any kids who got sick. I don't mean vac whether whether they were vaccinated or not. I just mean across the whole study, both arms, there were almost no kids that got significantly ill. So it was very difficult to draw conclusions as to uh, the efficacy of the vaccination. And especially when they added a third, uh, a third shot to the study group, they still don't have the good data on that. So my sense is I'm glad it's available. Um, and I would, I would highly encourage it for any kids with risk factors. But for the general population, my grandkids, right now I'm waiting a little bit. I want to see some more data. Fred, your view? I'm a little more in favor of the vaccine because, um, you know, young kids end up are often in daycare centers and therefore they are likely to be that's a likely to be a focus of infection if individuals are not vaccinated, and then they can bring it into the family, and then it could spread to people that are more immunocompromised. Uh, and the, the safety, I think there's, uh, the evidence is very good that it's extremely safe in this, these uh, young age groups. So uh, it's safe, and the other point is that looking at neutralizing antibodies, that's how you can infer efficacy from that. It's not as good as actually seeing people get infected and having lower numbers of infection in the vaccinated. 
But if you have high titers in the 1 to 1,000 range uh, of neutralizing antibodies, that's protective. And they have shown high titers with the vaccine. So there's every reason to believe it will be protective. And there's it's uh, excellent evidence that it's very safe. So under those circumstances, I, I favor the vaccine. And I think it's I, it's I don't I'm not going to I wouldn't argue the point, but I think it is to me. It's a close it's it's a close call. Um, but I, that's why I say that any any child with any risk factor should definitely. And for everybody else, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue uh, Fred's points. I just come down a little bit more on the on the. It's very gray. It's gray. (laughs) Now, I do want to address one of the things on vaccines because it's kind of a change in things I've said on this podcast before. Um, I've been a little bit skeptical about the second vaccine for many people. Uh, Remember, uh, the second booster, I should say. The second booster is only available for people who are over 50 or who have a significant, a moderate or severe immunocompromising condition. I think I got the wording pretty close to the, the actual um, emergency use authorization. What I've been saying and what I've said on this before is that with the uh, the newer vaccines that will incorporate some Omicron uh, components in them, scheduled to come out late summer, that if you hadn't been vaccinated already, that I said people might want to think about waiting a little bit. Well, now with the announcement last week that the FDA is going to uh, require that the manufacturers include a component of uh, of Omicron in their vaccines, of I'm sorry, of the later Omicrons, BA4, BA5, the manufacturers both announced that that will push back release of a uh, modified vaccine until October at the earliest. Um, I'm thinking now that I'm I'm going to go out and get the, a second booster. I'm going to do it soon, also, because I don't want to I don't want to run up too close to the availability of the enhanced booster. But I'd also don't want to get COVID as the summer goes on. Well, I think that's a wise approach. I've gotten the second booster uh, because I'm go on the wards and uh, I'm exposed quite frequently. And we do know that after about six months, the immunity does wane in relationship to antibody levels and also uh, the attack rate goes up as after about six months. So I, I think that, that you, I would recommend that second shot, uh, given particularly since the uh, BA5 uh, booster is not going to be available until October. All right, on those notes, uh, again, as always, thank you for sharing the perspectives. We're going to switch the podcast every three weeks and hope that the data continues to reflect a reduction of, uh, obviously, deaths and serious illnesses. But if there are any new developments, uh, either on the vaccines front or in terms of variants, we'll obviously we'll convene um, Fred, you and Bill for a um, sort of ad hoc podcast. But thanks for the time, as always, and uh, please continue to keep us informed. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. 
Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.